Hey, everybody. Absolutely stunning news over here this week. We have a video version of this week's episode available on our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash late night. Go over there, sign up at any tier, and you'll have access to it. Once again, that's patreon.com slash late night. Now, enjoy the show. You guys were having a discussion before I popped on here that I only caught part of what's happening. Yeah, we're both from North Jersey. We're both from North Jersey. Oh. Which means, of course, we share a special bond of movie city in Teaneck, which is <laughs> Satchel. So you grew up in Teaneck? Yeah. So this was a place I was telling Satchel when I was growing up, I would see the ads for movie city in the paper for the movies that were four months out of date. You missed them in the theater. And I would beg my mother, please, please let me go to Teaneck, which was like an hour away, maybe 45 minutes or something. It wasn't super close from where we lived. And she was always just like, I'm not, it's it's too far. That movie is terrible. You don't want to go see it. There were a lot of movies that that was my only chance. You could see it, you know, just as they were about to fade out of release. And then that was it. And then that was it. Yeah. My friends and I, we used to ride our bikes there because it was just so easy to like, because it was kind of like the place where movies went to die before you had to wait for like VHS <laughs> or whatever. Uh-huh. There was like five bucks to like, you could totally use allowance money to get in or yes. like if the right people were working there, they didn't care if you just- No, you just walk in. Walked in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a place like that in Paramus too, I used to go, which was, yeah, like way after everything else. Oh, yes, yes. Right? Uh, oh my gosh. I forgot what it's called. It changed owners so many times. Obviously now it's an AMC. Yeah. Totally used to go there. That place was great. Had a good arcade too. Yeah. There was the big one, the Cineplex Odeon. Is that the one you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can like remember so many specific movies I saw there. Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, Ghostbusters 2, Fargo. Like all in the theater. That was one of my favorite. It was like kind of in this corner, right? In that little Yeah, it was mall. just kind of sequestered off of everything, like tucked behind a highway. Yep. And for me, that's where all of my friends went. It was big enough that like people would hang out on those big steps that were outside, you know? Yes. Or like, yep. even if you didn't like have a movie to watch or if you just got out, like people would stick around for like a couple of hours. It was a good place to hang. Oh yeah, I love that theater. God, I mean, I probably saw a hundred movies there. And you're right, that arcade was incredible. Like a legit great arcade. I talk about it, the arcade in the movie theater, like just the entire idea of it to other people. And they're like, that's not a common thing. Really? Like my theater didn't have like a bunch of cool shit in it. It had maybe like one like cruising USA or something. And that was it. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> you know what I, mean? <laughs> I remember, I feel like maybe they had Pac-Mania, which was that weird 3D Pac-Man game that came out briefly. Mm. But I can remember wanting to go to that theater early just to play video games. And this is probably in the like the late 80s or something like that. Yeah, but wait, is that a Jersey thing? Arcades and movie theaters? No way. It wasn't a good arcade, but there was a pretty sizable arcade in a Carmike Cinemas back home. It was like the shittier of the movie theaters. It was right next to a Sonic. So it was always exciting to go see your shitty movie and then go to Sonic, which it's about the experience. It's not about the food. That's right. <laughs> so were you a big Garden State Plaza guy growing up, Satchel? Yeah. Wow. Okay. 
We're going there. Yeah. We're going there right away. <laughs> Alienating everybody else for just specific mall talk from North Jersey. This is great because I'm going to play the audience surrogate right now and you have to explain to me <laughs> everything that you talk about here. So great. Garden State Plaza, it's the staple mall. It has to be ranked somewhere with regards to its size. It was smaller back in the day. It's only recently been like just hyper remodeled and a bunch of stuff added to it. But it was so well known that New Yorkers, there's actually a shuttle bus from Manhattan to Garden State Plaza, to Primus in general, because it's just such a like mall capital of the country. And no sales tax, right? That's the other thing. Yeah, that's the big sell. There'll always be a big sign for like the shuttle bus. And it's like, no sales tax, shop for whatever you want. Yep. Yeah, that was the place that my friends and I went like after school and on Fridays to like waste time, like get mm-hmm. bubble tea, go to Suncoast video. <laughs> yes, of course. Uh, I remember when that opened because it used to be Paramus Park was like the place. Right. With the big fountains, right? Remember that? Like mm-hmm. the center thing with the big, big fountains. And I think glass elevators too, if I'm remembering correctly. Yeah, the glass elevator, they added a Ferris wheel. They put a Ferris wheel in that? Oh my God. Yeah, it's too much. <laughs> <laughs> As a, I don't know, like late teens, early 20s guy, that was my like Christmas shopping circuit was Garden State Plaza to Paramus Park for the stuff I couldn't get in Garden State Plaza mm. to, there's a big Barnes and Noble on 17 over there somewhere too. That's cool. Bless your heart parking in the Paramus Park Oh Mall. my God, dude. It's just so <laughs> insane. Yeah. Okay, I know we're at risk of alienating literally everybody here, but that's fine. That's the podcast, dude. That's just our entire thing. It's like, how hard can we hemorrhage listeners throughout the episode? This is such a rare energy. I'm thriving. Oh, dude, I I never get to talk about this. Like, I'm so excited. There was a store, a big store called Alexander's, which had this giant disgusting mural or like piece of art on the outside, right on Route 17. Do you know what I'm talking about? I don't think I'm super familiar with this. Was it like a big old clothing department store, like Daffy's? Yes, it it felt like it was from the 60s. I vaguely remember this, yeah. And I think right on 17, and when I was little, I used to love this place because Alexander is my middle name. And as a little kid, I would be like, oh, you know, it's like named after me or some shit. (laughs) Brian, I don't think I knew your middle name. I feel like I just never, ever considered it. Yeah. Do I know yours? What is it? The? (laughs) I'm going to come to your house and kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so anyway, thank you for derailing that story. You're welcome. I remember seeing this thing. It was like an old 60s apartment store, and it had this piece of artwork. It was huge. It took up like the whole wall. You could see it from Route 17. I'm saying Route 17, but it might be Route 4. And I remember hating this thing. It's calling it a mural, but it's not a mural. It was some just gigantic piece of like real splotchy random colors. Huh. Okay. I got to Google this. (laughs) I feel like my parents would talk about it all the time. Alexander's Paramus artwork outside. I found it. You found it? I need to see this. Hit us. Yep. There it is. Oh, hmm. I guess it is a mural. It's an iconic mural. I think I remember this. Right. In Karlstadt, New Jersey. I remember looking at this thing growing up and being like, what the fuck? It's supposed to be a mammoth in mothballs. Okay. (laughs) All right. Okay. This style of art does literally nothing for me. It feels like some 60s bullshit. 
basically. It doesn't inspire commerce. No. <laughs> Layton, as an artist, what is your take on this thing? It's perfectly non-offensive, which is what you want a corporate mural to be. Is this artist famous? Stefan Knapp. And it's from 1961. And I'm reading this Times article. It incited, quote, strong responses. Hmm. Oh, this artist has some other fun stuff that isn't that. There's some orbs. Mm -hmm. I love an orb. His other stuff's kind of fun. I love talking about things the audience can't see. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Here's my other memory of that stretch of Paramus. There was a weird little Mexican restaurant called the Fiesta Hut. This I don't remember. Or wait. So there were two that were similar. One was called the Taco Pit. (laughs) The other was the Fiesta Hut. And I think they were the same owners. The Taco Pit? Yeah. One was in Kinalon and one was in Paramus. And we used to love this place. And it was like the gringoiest Mexican food, you know, hard shell tacos, that kind of stuff. But it was a family favorite growing up. All right. That's probably in the years between us then, the Fiesta Hut. And the taco pit. Can't forget the taco pit. Cannot let go of the taco pit mentally. <laughs> Just any restaurant with the word pit. With the word pit in the title. Go to the pit. Go to the burger pit. I don't want to go to any pit of food. <laughs> <laughs> So what was your exodus from North Jersey, Satchel? Like, when did you leave? I guess that was when I graduated college. So I went to TCNJ. Uh, I was in Ewing, New Jersey, Central Jersey. Nice. It was always kind of a half an hour from Philly. And uh, at the time, I was studying art. And we would always go out to Philly for museums and stuff. And a lot of the stuff that I liked was there. A lot of stuff I was into, made some friendships. I figured after I graduated, I'd move there, be there for a bit. And then after that, moved up to New York to just continue career stuff and still am sort of very involved in like design. So New York seemed like a a great place to sort of return to, especially just growing up with the knowledge. I kind of had a bit of a dual citizenship situation um, just because my family is kind of based out of Brooklyn as well and would always kind of go back and forth and I would go on weekends to like hang out. So nice. It all just sort of made sense. Lived there for a bit. I don't mean to change like the regional subject, but I just wanted to ask about (laughs) your design work. I'm really curious about it. Oh, so, I mean, I was always kind of like an open book. I started in music just because I love music a lot. And you have a beautiful voice. Thank you. (laughs) Like your singing and music videos are good stuff. Thanks so much. That's really encouraging to hear. I um, started just a very kind of cliche path. Like all designers will say like, oh yeah, I was super in design in high school and my friends had a band and I made like really shitty punk and metal shirts uh, and -hmm. was super proud to see them, you know, on sale at shows and stuff. It kind of logically progressed and I started doing album and like concert collateral design and marketing collateral at Atlantic Records and then Warner Brothers Music. Oh, nice. And then after that, uh, I kind of pivoted into tech because I love print design. I'll always have a heart for print design. But as far as like just stability, it was just a shaky space at the time. Things were kind of moving over. And because of that, it was harder to find a place that would have like an in-house team. It was more kind of a culture of freelancers for that kind of stuff, just because Things were moving fast, like creative movements and styles were moving really quickly. And I loved kind of like the first kind of fleet of smartphones and user experience stuff. And I thought that that would be a really interesting 
kind of problem solving thing to dive into. And I got in just before user experience was a kind of term that people threw around to describe the job of mm-hmm. making like iPhone and iPad apps and stuff. And I've kind of stuck around since. I've kind of always like created and done my own thing online and stuff, but I've also always contributed in that world as well. That's awesome. You mentioned like the problem solving aspect of it, which I think is the hump that I've never really been able to get over with like design. Cause you know, you go to art school and you kind of figure out things and I'm so much more on the like illustrator side, but I'm really curious how you tackle visual problem solving. Cause I feel like everybody has such a different approach to that. I mean, it's also so dependent on like what you're doing it for, but. For sure. Yeah. One big thing is definitely who you're doing it for and like what they believe in. Design goals. and Yeah. It's interesting how married to worldview it is, but I guess something that I kind of air towards enjoying is sort of you know, questions around accessibility. Can everybody kind of like have a problem free time with this? Minimizing the amount of frustration that can come from like learning new patterns. Like if you download a new app and it feels like things that should be obvious aren't obvious, like solving for that is like a really fun thing to kind of do or even talk through. But I think what's really cool is that some people will describe themselves as like, I'm a human interface designer. I really like that kind of nomenclature because it really does feel like so married to how you view the world and how you sort of view who you picture in your mind when you're kind of putting something together for a lot of people to use or a targeted group of people to use. But yeah, it is a different kind of problem solving thing than like illustration fine art. So I did both, have always done both. It almost feels like the problem to solve, at least for me, like if it's illustration or like fine art stuff, the problem is in the abstractions, it's in the systems, it's in the like figuring out what you're reacting to or what kind of proactive message you have to say. I'm sorry that I'm doing like straight interviewer questions on this show. Should we then maybe introduce... Yeah. ourselves right now. Normally, Satchel will go like an hour before we remember to do or this. Or never. <laughs> that's great. I love it. Everybody, this is Late Night with Brian Wecht. Over here, we have Layton Gray. Hello, that's me. The voice that just spoke was Brian Alexander Wecht. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> Mystery guest. Would you care to introduce yourself? My name is Satchel Drakes. I'm a citizen of the internet. <laughs> great. <laughs> what a perfect way to put it. Being a citizen of the internet I'm just always curious about this with designers and like the, oh man, are we 20 minutes into this episode and I'm already like, the internet's bad. But so much of the way that the internet can be harmful is like baked in design-wise. Do you think about that a lot? I'm thinking about it a lot. Mm. So 10 years ago, I would describe the internet and the platforms that people use and congregate and stuff. I would describe it as a wild west. And I thought that I'd be calling it a wild west for a long time. I wouldn't say that it is anymore. I'd say we're in an interesting kind of period where people thought that the complete absence of moderation would sort of be the solution to the playground that is where we kind of talk and have conversations and stuff. Uh I think we quickly realized that the platform actually does have to have some kind of agency in how people interact with each other because it can be such a grievous place sometimes or a place where people can sort of organize for not the good of everyone. So on that front, it seems right now we're in a special spot where platforms are learning 
how to moderate, but they're doing it very clumsily. Like who defines censorship is kind of a really touchy subject. And it's such a hard question. There's just no easy answer. Yeah. Yeah. There's no answer that will make everybody happy. So many intersections of things too, because, you know, so much of like keeping a platform viable ends up boiling down to capitalism and like how can we keep people's eyes and keep them using this thing? And for a lot of websites, the shit that makes all of us miserable is great for them because that means that we're looking at it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. The coexistence of like mental real estate engineering teams that are sort of hired to make sure that you're paying attention to the app as often as possible. And then even when you're off your phone, you're thinking about what's happening on it. Like we all kind of unanimously agree that those teams aren't great, but they're hired by the same company that's trying to also like moderate and make these spaces a friendly place, sort of. But that friendliness is also kind of rooted in like this like old Americana family values thing that gets in the way of all different kinds of sub communities, traditionally marginalized communities. Like it just, it all makes it really weird and messy. Yeah, I like calling it mental real estate. That's yeah, I like that a lot. Super accurate. It's that classic, you know, red badge on Facebook. That kind of hit of dopamine you get when you see you got the number inside the little circle. Yeah, yeah. the uh, intermittent variable rewards. Who do you think is doing it best these days, if anybody? This medium of, I hate using this word, freedom, with mm. moderation. Do you think there's anyone who's edging in the right <sighs> direction? I think all the tech monopolies are bad. Yeah, it seems that <laughs> yeah. way, right? Like, yeah, yeah. I'd say the least egregious right now is TikTok, but probably just because they're young and they're profiting so directly from people who traditionally wouldn't have as great of a platform now having it. Yes. It's like new universal content for people. And so in that way, they're doing really well. But they're also figuring out how to play with this kind of long-form Vine videos that people can kind of surf through. We were talking about this recently, and I'm not really a TikTok user, but it's cool how like ubiquitous captioning and subtitling is. I know it's like a lot of work to actually make that happen, but it's nice to see that people like will make an eight-second video like accessible with text. Mm. So that's a positive thing that's sort of come out of a lot of this. People have such an allergic reaction to anything that sort of accommodates like disabled folks. Like they think about like the amount of hours and the cost of hours that are burned on it and they don't think it's worth it. And that's like super strange to me. But the core TikTok like user group strongly advocate for having captions on things. And now when Mm -hmm. new things are built, it's just like a no brainer to have dynamic captions. Before then, if you were uploading a video, like it was there, like, you know, some people would bake it in, in like Final Cut or Premiere or whatever. But now it feels weird. At least I'm noticing a pattern and I see other people kind of sharing the same sentiment where it feels weird sharing a video that doesn't have captions. Yeah, and now I see a lot more YouTube uh, videos with captions Mm. on them too, right? I think it's not just a TikTok thing. I think it has migrated over to other platforms in general. I see it especially with like newsy kind of stuff. If it's like an edutainment sort of thing, they're all captioned pretty much throughout these days. How much of that feels like if you're scrolling through a feed, Twitter or whatever, it's not like the audio in every video is going to play automatically. I feel like having the captions is sort of a... Maybe this is the more cynical part of me that's just like, oh, this is meant to be an attention grabbing, like, we're going to get you in right now. 
uh, and compress <laughs> the meaning of this thing into as few words as possible. But like, I think either way, it's good for accessibility. I'm just so distrustful. It also seems like the reason it took off, maybe this is what you're saying, Satchel, it just became a style, right? And people liked the style, I think, without thinking much about accessibility and did it for aesthetic or comedic or whatever reasons. And a really great consequence or side effect or whatever of that is the increased accessibility. Does that sound right? No, 100%. You're right in a sense that like it has become a style. People will caption things and the caption doesn't perfectly line up and there's like a use of emojis and spelling things differently and stuff. There's like a whole separate vibe to captions now that has become an extension of creativity. Mm -hmm. I was kind of paying attention to that. It was only maybe like two or three years ago. There was an interesting sort of groundswell of using captions where it felt like people were discovering the kind of positive commercial ectoplasm of captioning videos, which was people are scrolling on trains, on the bus, whatever, like in public right. places, and they can't always stop and then, you know, put an ear pod in and like listen to whatever's going on. And actually having the captions is, is easy. And I find myself like sometimes I'll sit through entire videos like in a public space and just read the captions and then call it a day. Mm-hmm. Me too. It seems like it like happened after and at the same time in a weird way. With tech stuff, it almost feels like propagation. Like it's just bouncing all over the place and hard to find the, the yeah. place of origin. That's right. But yeah, definitely there are like multiple reasons that it actually became beneficial. And now it seems like it's here to stay. Yeah, it totally does. It's just everywhere. Do you have a TikTok and stuff like that? Or are you just a, a lurker? I do, but not in like a aggressively creating kind of way mostly a lurker. Like I mostly just kind of scroll, but TikTok is so unpretentious. Yes. That it's such a convenient dumping ground for different ideas and things that I want to make or share that I just do it and I don't think about it. There's this thing where like you start using TikTok for a while and like posting on Instagram starts feeling embarrassing. Like you start thinking (laughs) about like, I'm so embarrassed using Instagram and I use it and you share it and you're just like, what am I doing? You're thinking about like, oh, this person's going to see this. Like, I'm just going through the same, like, sort of, like, syntax of thoughts or whatever. And TikTok just doesn't have that because people are like, no, you're not a finished product. Just put it. You had a thought. All right, it's there, whatever. Yeah. And people don't punish you or, like, unfollow because your video wasn't interesting. It's a little less, like, a performance review every time you decide to share something and more, like, you have a constant line of communication and sometimes things hit. You know, a lot of people resonate with it and sometimes they don't. And that's just kind of a part of being a person that's constantly making stuff. That's interesting. It's the first time I've really seen an inflection like that on like a social platform. And it's interesting to watch and kind of participate in that way. Totally. The other thing that strikes me as very interesting about TikTok, I just signed up for it, I don't know, six months ago or something like that after resisting it for whatever, a couple of years. And when you first start using it, you're like, what the fuck is going on? (laughs) It is so bad. Unless you're following (laughs) specific people, when you just go to that For You page the first time, I was just like, why am I here? This is, uh, I don't want to do this. (laughs) And then I had a couple of friends 
say in what feels like a very dystopian way, no, just keep using it. And I was like, I don't think I like that. <laughs> It'll figure you out. <laughs> It'll fit. Yeah, totally. It'll figure you out. Dude, but doesn't it? It gets weirdly specific. <laughs> it totally does. And so I started following like science people and music people and things like that. And pretty soon the like weird right-wing memes or whatever that were getting recommended to me before totally vanished. And now it's just a bunch of like science stuff and music stuff and things like that. But it took me a while to see the utility of it and just to find the really good stuff and basically make the other stuff vanish. That feels very different than, let's say, you know, any of the other big ones, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, where you just start by following people. Like you literally pick who to follow right away. And you're not really going to see much. I mean, maybe now you'll see a few recommended things, but you're not going to see much unless you choose who to follow. Whereas you can just sign up for TikTok and it starts throwing videos at you. That's a really interesting and unique behavior. I don't know if there's been a platform prior to TikTok where you have the option to scroll through just the videos of the people you're following, but most people don't. Most people do scroll through like the discovery page. But when you think about the Instagram discovery page, I can't think of something more inaccurate. No, it's terrible. (laughs) Creepy. It's the kind of thing occasionally I like swipe over there by accident on Instagram. And I'm like, why am I here? I hate all of this. It feels like (laughs) offensive. Like, oh, this is the read that you got on me based on me barely using this app? Right. So you think I want to see? 100%. It started recommending like a bunch of pinup girls to me. Nice. Which is not offensive or anything, but I was like, is this what my main focus is? (gasps) Mm -hmm. I don't think so, but Mm -hmm. okay. Is what you said, Layton. Why do you think this about me? Yeah. There are a lot of terrifying mirrors that websites and data throw at you. One is like the image that other people have of you. Then there's like what image the data has of you and like the predictive nature of it all of like, it's the thing that we've spoken about before of like your phone isn't listening to you. It's just already so deep that it knows what you're going to look for before you look for it. It terrifies me a good bit. And there's something about like, TikTok with the way that it feels so much more immediate, like thinking about Instagram compared to TikTok feels like putting things in like a plastic box. Like this is my display case Mm -hmm, for Instagram, mm -hmm. where it seems like with my minimal knowledge of it, that TikTok is way more fluid. It almost feels like a nervous system that everyone's just kind of like this exchange and dumping things out and trying things, whereas Instagram feels really terribly static. Yes. And TikTok feels way more collaborative than anywhere else. Like baked in. A hundred percent because of the stitching and the duets and everything. That was one of the real appeals to me is it's great for music precisely because of these features. I was not on Musical.ly at all, so I don't know what was part of that and what was new to TikTok. But certainly, basically from the inception of TikTok, if not before, it was sort of built for creating music together, which it does really well. Or for uh, dancing to your dying grandfather, which is always just going to be my favorite remnant of Musical.ly. You know, the one where the kid's like in front of his... No, I don't know this one. (laughs) What is this? Oh, hold This this was like the one thing that I knew about Musical.ly or TikTok. It's 15 seconds that started going full blast and now I cannot hear anything except a ringing. There it is. It's 15 seconds. It's this thing. All right. I'm going to watch this right now. I can not. I can not today. Wow. 
I want to unknow that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I mean, it's the kind of thing that <laughs> reads like a joke, right? But it, oh. <laughs> I think that was the video that was my very first awareness of musically or whatever. And then Christ. once it morphed into TikTok, that was the only thing that stayed in my head. <laughs> so, you know, it has a small little stake of mental real estate in my mind. Mm-hmm. Oh, this poor idiot kid. <laughs> <laughs> that poor grandpa. <laughs> okay, I, I think I've recovered. <laughs> I created like a pocket of a bummer and I'm sorry. <laughs> no, you're good. I'm definitely not bummed out. I'm just like more puzzled than anything. So an Instagram thing I was thinking about uh, just yesterday, I posted a very, very gentle thing that I sent to Leighton, just reminding people that there was an election in California. And stating how you voted in said election. It said, if you're a California voter, vote in the recall election. Parenthetical, I voted no. And the toxicity of the comments was intense in such a way where I was like, on Instagram? Not on Twitter. I posted basically the same thing on Twitter. Like literally the Instagram post was a picture of my tweet about the same thing. Twitter comments, there wasn't much there. Instagram went off and... I was very puzzled by that. Not that negativity exists on Instagram. Like, of course it does. Yeah. But just that where I thought if any community reacts to this, it's going to be Twitter people basically because of shareability. Maybe it's just that expectation of what you tweeted is a very Twitter thing to tweet. It's not a very Instagram thing to share. As evidenced by the fact that I Instagrammed a picture of a tweet. So no. <laughs> like... I mean, taking it back is the wrong word. I was just like, oh, wow, I guess this is where this argument's going down. There's something so particularly terrible about when people get into arguments with each other under your post, because A, it's stressful for you, because then it's usually about you or what you have said. But then there's the additional element of like, man, people are like having shitty moments in their day because they're arguing with each other on the comments of this thing that I have to keep getting notifications every time they throw a dunk on. Like, yeah. no, thank you. And the other thing is with Instagram arguments, the threading sucks yeah. on it. So you can never tell who mm. is really responding to what. Yeah. Right. And then you keep doing the read more, read more, read more. And it's just like paragraphs of text to get to the insight. It like, ah, ah. Yeah, I didn't send this to you, Layton. I did take a screenshot of what my favorite comment was, which I'll read to you. This is where everyone slowly learns that a PhD is just a piece of paper and not a sign of overall intelligence. <laughs> God. Yeah, wait, wait, it gets better. This, you oh pay the schools God. enough money and adopt their ritualistic ideals, and you will be given the paper of solidarity. <laughs> That feels like a fucking copy bot. Wow. <laughs> it's personal enough that I don't think it's a bot, but it's also stupid enough <laughs> that maybe it is. I can't with these discourse queens. Like. I know. <laughs> <laughs> discourse queens. Yeah. Yes, that's a, that's a great term for who this person is. Oh, <sighs> the paper of solidarity. The paper of solidarity. You should call all degrees. You got a college degree, you just have a paper of solidarity. <laughs> I've aligned to the false learnings of the books. <laughs> exhausting and well, whatever. Exhausting is the word. So much of the internet is exhausting. And we talk about it constantly yeah. on this show. The jar for talking about the internet and Twitter is getting filled with dollars today. 
but like <laughs> we talk about it so much for a reason and it's because it occupies so much of that mental real estate. It feels like the dome the mental real estate is in, which the fact that I'm even referring to it as like an encapsulating thing for my mental real estate, I think says a lot, but like it's so ingrained in us and the logic of social media. I don't know, guys. I'm feeling really <laughs> cynical and bad about the internet lately. Yeah. And right. always, but especially acutely. Anyway, I don't know. What's inspiring you guys lately? Like, what's a positive? <laughs> this would be a good left turn into something we haven't even talked about. So what music is exciting to you these days? I've kind of been down a little bit of like a nostalgic wormhole right now where I've been listening to like the hardcore bands of like my teens. Oh, nice. Yeah. Which are like Seosin, Circus of Ive. Just, I guess I'm circling back around to just like all of that angsty stuff. There was kind of like a moment a few years ago where there was a lot of like punk revival yes. stuff. And I mean, it's really just intensifying my tinnitus, if I'm honest, but <laughs> it's been a lot of that. Some like older neo soul stuff from like the early 2000s. Mm -hmm. Like, D'Angelo? Literally D'Angelo as of yesterday, yeah. Just the best. So talented and impressive, yeah. Yeah, I stumbled back in because I was listening to his Black Messiah record. Yeah, which is amazing. It's so good and like so suits him and his style. What put me all there was there's this, I don't even know what genre to say that they are. They're based out of Melbourne, Australia. They're called Hiatus Coyote. I don't know. That's a good name. Yeah, they do a lot of like neo soul stuff. So I guess that's kind of what I've been listening to lately. That and then just like a bunch of covers of like Studio Ghibli songs and stuff. Um, <laughs> <laughs> how about you guys? I've been writing a smooth jazz album. I've been getting deep down the smooth jazz rabbit hole to the extent where I can no longer tell what music I hate and what music I love. It's just so deconstructed at this point. <laughs> There's something about that genre where like the musicianship is incredible. The production is amazing. And some of it's just awful. And then you're like, but actually, is this incredible? And <laughs> there's one guy in particular who I love now. His name is Walter Beasley. He's a soprano sax player. And... It nails this vibe. He is avowedly a smooth jazz saxophonist. That's his genre. And he's like a Berkeley music school professor, a legit guy, knows what he's doing, certainly. And the more I listen to it, is it good or not, becomes just an irrelevant question I don't even care about because I just think it's great. He has this song is called Strasbourg Saint-Denis. It's just great production, basically just a groove that goes on for four minutes and then stops. And to me, it's like the perfect smooth jazz song. So that's the rabbit hole I've gone down into recently. Also, the Rippingtons. Do you know the Rippingtons at all? No, this is new to me. Probably a 90s, 2000s. I think they're still active. Smooth jazz act. And again, it's so well produced. They have this really off-putting cat as their mascot. Google Rippingtons cat. There's something about this design which is deeply unsettling to me. Love it. It. What? Right? Yeah. Because it's like very off-putting to me, but it also is interesting. Their music, and again, it's like technically incredible. It's so good, but maybe it's awful. I, I, can't, I can't tell. But these are like my style 
guides. I'm obsessed with this cat, and I love how many of the uh, image results are from furries who want to draw the Rippington's cat. Like, that rules. Oh, yeah, I bet. The other thing about that genre is then you get the people who are, like, not on that, like, is it good or not, but, like, they're just great. Like a George Benson or Grover Washington Jr., who I fucking love, one of my sacks playing, like, heroes. You get that stuff where you're like, okay, this is great. Those guys are great. Like, there's no debate here. But it's the other kind of liminal stuff that I think is very, very interesting. What's Audrey's take on jazz? She loves all music. She just bounces around. My wife was like, she told me I had to stop playing so much smooth jazz because... She was just not into it is a completely fair assessment. And, you know, my seven-year-old loves all music and she just sits there and dances around and loves it. She's been very into, I talked about this on the show a couple of weeks ago, but the new Prince album that they just put out, it's an album he recorded 10 years ago, didn't release for God knows why, wasn't feeling it, put out a few singles and then they put out what feels like a complete album. I mean, it basically is a complete album. And it's a very good Prince album. All right. I'm excited. I heard about this. Not at all. That's great. Dude, it it is worth listening to. It's got some really great tracks on it. The playing is, it's whatever group he was playing with around then. I think it's an all-female backing group, pretty much. And they're just amazing players. And there are some really, really great tracks. What's your favorite track? God, what's the name of it? Well, the album is Welcome to America, A Thousand Light Years From Here. Okay. Mm. Um, and Audrey likes that one a lot too. That's solid. The closest I've been able to get to like newer stuff from him was through the Dirty Computer, Janelle Monet record. Yeah, great. Love that album. Which I later on found out that he helped produce. Yeah. The jazz that I've been listening to lately, it's been Kamasi Washington. He's amazing. Dave Brubeck, that Time Out record. It's a classic, yeah. The more I listen to, it sounds like soft metal in a way. Like the... There has to be a metal cover of Blue Rondo, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and the last one, Ambrose. I don't know if that rings a bell. No, that I don't know. But actually, here's the intersection. Have you heard the Al Jarreau version of Blue Rondo? No. Where he puts lyrics to it? What? No. Yes. It is prime Al Jarreau. It's like 1981 or something. So it's heyday. And I think it's on Breaking Away. And he puts lyrics where it's like melody, harmony, da, 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 da. You know, that kind of thing. Okay. It's sort of like, you know, Lambert Hendricks and Ross, that kind of style. Okay. They took a great jazz song and put lyrics just to the melody. I love it. And it's worth checking out. That's solid. How would you describe the difference between jazz and soft jazz? How would I describe it? I don't want to say anything negative. I'm trying not to say anything insulting because I, I generally don't want to belittle people whose genre that is, who are some of whom are very, very accomplished musicians. I don't know the vocabulary well enough. It feels like there is a production style to smooth jazz, soft jazz that is not there in more traditional stuff. You know what I mean? It mm. feels more produced in a way. I feel like with a lot of jazz recordings, it's kind of like you're in the room, you know, it's just a session and these guys are playing and you're there with mm. soft jazz production feels like it plays a bigger part of it. And I think this is, by the way, less true. You know, if you listen to a fucking Thundercat album or something now, production is a huge part of it. But at least traditionally, 
I'm, I'm hedging everything here because obviously there's a lot of talent that went into producing classical jazz albums, yeah. like classic jazz albums too. You know, obviously the people like Rudy Van Gelder, whoever people ever was in charge of recording kind of blue or something clearly knew what they were doing, but it feels like it's more of a producer's thing than a traditional jazz is. Do you think that's fair? Oh, that's interesting. I like that perspective on it. From a cursory Google, it seems to be the difference between like leading really heavy on improv versus not. I was going to say, yeah. Yeah, that's definitely part of it too. Although the other thing I noticed with a lot of smooth jazz is, this is also true about a lot of regular jazz, but with smooth jazz, it's more present. They get one like perfect groove. It's like a 30, 45 second chunk. And they're not really playing a full lead sheet in the way a traditional jazz musician would. They just do this thing. They repeat it almost exactly. Walter Beasley, by the way, is like the master of this. To the extent you're just in this pocket and you just live there and then you do it again without much variation. Then there's some soloing, which can go on for hours. And then they just do that initial thing again. And it feels like there's less variation than traditional jazz. It's like the focus on creating the smooth vibe. Yes, I think that's a big part of it. And the solos are typically not as... <laughs> the first word my brain reached for was accomplished, uh, <laughs> but that's unfair. Let's see, maybe typically not as complicated as a traditional thing, but that's not to say these guys aren't great musicians and very adept at their instruments, you know, but they're not doing, they're not doing like Coltrane, Charlie Parker, like bebop, you know, crazy note flurry for 25 minutes kind of solos. Right. Yeah. What would you say? I have a hard time as well, particularly because I have such a limited sonic vocabulary in a lot of ways. The best words I could put to it is like, they just seem like they have entirely different personhoods in a way, I guess. That's, that's all I got. Yeah. I only have like abstractions for that kind of stuff. Like I feel like I'm less inclined to come across a smooth jazz record that does what this most recent sort of Ambrose record I listened to where the seams of where one track starts and ends aren't really clear. And I can resonate with what you're saying where I'm not entirely sure what I'm listening to, but I keep putting the record on and then just letting it spin until it's time to turn the side. I don't know any other way to sort of differentiate. Maybe that's a beautiful thing. I think it's definitely a plus. I think another element of it is, I hope this doesn't get me in trouble. <laughs> Traditional jazz feels intellectual in a way smooth jazz does not. Mm. You know, jazz feels like it's created by nerds in a way that smooth jazz doesn't. It's more mathy. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> I mean, that's because when you think about like someone like Coltrane, I mean, it's all patterns and, you know, getting into the nitty gritty of how everything works. And I don't know if he thought mathematically, although I suspect he did, but it feels very geeky and intellectual and smooth jazz to me feels like oh, we're just vibing we're here and we're having a good time and we got it and we feel good. Mm. As somebody who knows nothing about jazz, this is fascinating. I see the struggle in like trying to delicately describe the differences. Because what I want to say, which is just sort of like a very quick reductive thing, is like, I feel like smooth jazz has a home on elevators and in cafes. A hundred percent. But oh my gosh, I realize what I'm saying when I say that. And it's like, ah, that's not what I mean, but kind of what I mean. Like, I don't know. <laughs> Dude, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Also, 
I don't want to belittle anyone's taste. There are people who, I mean, it's like their whole being and not just people listening to it, people making it. And that is in no way less than like, you know, a bebop player or something like that. Yeah. Even though I suspect if you asked a bebop type, I mean, that's such an outdated term, but you know what I mean? Like a more traditional jazz musician what they thought of smooth jazz. I don't think they would have nice things to say, (laughs) mostly. But maybe this is also changing. Like Thundercat did this song with Michael McDonald and Kenny Loggins. You know, clearly (laughs) the guy loves yacht rock, you know, Mm. soft rock, that kind of stuff. It's clearly very important to him. He's not super young, but he's of a younger generation of jazz musicians. And he clearly loves this stuff. So maybe that's an older person thing is to really draw this hard line between traditional and smooth jazz. By the way, I keep wanting to say hard jazz and soft jazz. <laughs> hard jazz, baby. Hard jazz. People <laughs> do say hard bop for like some of the hardcore bebop stuff. But I feel like all things as younger people come in, they don't really care about definitions as much. They just like what they like. And then things get fused together and get better. That much is true. Yeah. When you're working, especially with design stuff, are you a podcasty person or a more musicy person when you're working? I mix it up. I probably listen to music a bit more. Design music stuff is usually an opportunity to listen to things that I normally wouldn't or if there's something new to like give it a shot. I really like radio. I hope radio never goes anywhere. Yes. There's just something to it and you feel kind of localized and connected in a way that I never want to let go of. But usually more music. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally agree with you about radio. One thing I love about radio that this may be one of the very, very few places this still exists is you don't know when things are going to (laughs) end. Like Mm. you can't see the counter counting down to the end of the song. Mm. And I feel like so much of our internet life is defined by knowing exactly how long something is and how much time is left. Right. Yeah. And I think it is so valuable to have this experience of like, is this going to be five minutes? Is it going to be one minute? Is it going to be 20 minutes? I agree. Because there's nothing more painful than like you share a YouTube video with your friend and then they like jiggle the cursor. Oh, thing. You're like, oh, are you not completely immersed like me? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Are you not just totally. sucked in in this very moment? <laughs> this is probably overreaching. But to me, it just emphasizes my mortality every time I see this counter, like counting down, going down. It's like, all right, you know, getting older. I'm going to count my life not in uh, coffee spoons, but in episodes of this show as I watch the clock slowly (laughs) tick down. 100%. To me, it was a big transition to everything I consume now. I know how long it is. (laughs) I love that radio, you know, lets me not worry about that. It's the vibe. They're curating a vibe and you're going to sit and you're going (laughs) indoor isn't the right word, but it's less of an immediacy. Like, let me measure out and chunk out my content on my lunch break or commute or whatever. You escape the algorithm a little bit. The constant beefing up of your paper trail and your footprint on everything. What's weird is like, I am now re-romanticizing stuff that was so egregious when I didn't have a choice where like, you know, I'm at the will of the DJ. And like, so I listen to WXPN, they're based out of Philadelphia. It's kind of like a user supported, like vinyl only radio. And like the DJ, like for whatever reason, this season has this affinity in the mornings with Red Hot Chili Peppers. 
And uh-huh. Red Hot Chili Peppers will always make its way in. And my partner used to work at XPN and there's kind of like a little bit of like familiarity. Like he kind of knows him. And I just sent over a tweet. I was like, I'm loving this. Uh, I think we're good with Red Hot Chili Peppers. <laughs> and like, I love that it's a person and for whatever reason, this is their vibe right now and that that interaction can happen. Yes, very much. Yeah, I'm really curious about like Vernon, who, thank you, Vernon, who will probably listen to this for uh, Rope and Satchel into this show. But I like asking people like, what's in your rotation right now? Spotify generation bred, like I'm going to listen to this song until I hate it. But usually, like, you got a few songs in your rotations that you keep gravitating towards. And I think part of the appeal of the radio stuff is that you're being folded in to somebody else's rotation. Yes, definitely. I say that as a non-radio listener, but it's fun. Should we do segments? Yes. I would love to do segments. Okay. Okay. So our first segment is our pop culture recommendation segment, which we've done a lot of with music already, but that's fine. That's just kind of what the show is. We get to recommend another thing in pop culture that we like, a book, movie, TV, video game, etc. The segment is called What's Poppin', and the theme song goes here. Now we add it in post, so you're not going to hear it. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? All right. That is the theme song to What's Poppin'. Layden, what's poppin'? What's poppin' for me is... A VH1 reality show called Daisy of Love. Um, are either of you familiar <laughs> with it? No. Tell me about this. I was hanging out with Susie the other night, and she just threw it on. And it's the most wild pocket of 2009 subculture. I don't think I've ever seen that many fedoras in one place in my entire life. <laughs> It's sort of like a bachelorette kind of thing, but with like, apparently they literally just recruited dudes who are hanging outside of like, quote unquote, alt bars. And they're all competing for the love of Daisy De La Hoya. And it is so bizarre. Like they're such characters. She is such a character. I can't recommend it. I think it's on Hulu. I'm not super far into it, but it's just like a bananas hypnotic thing of like, these are real people. What is going on? Why is this man doing a backflip? Why are there three twins who look exactly the same and they come as a package deal for Daisy? Why? (laughs) Do you watch anything else like this? No. This feels like a very not you thing. It feels like going to the zoo, kind of. Oh, I'm stealing that. I love that. That's the best way to put it. (laughs) That's how I've heard people describe, like, the TikTok Explore page. It's just, like, taking a little peek. But, yeah, that's what's popping for me, because otherwise it would just be me recommending the original CSI, which I've been watching obsessively (laughs) as my quote-unquote nothing content lately. Because there are only a thousand episodes of it. Yeah. God, I don't mean to talk about CSI, but I got to the episode in season two that's meant as the springboard for CSI Miami. And I didn't realize that that's how that show got set up, that they were like, oh, we're just going to shove a CSI Miami pilot into this. (laughs) So when David Caruso just like suddenly shows up, it was wild. Felt pretty craven. Apparently, William Peterson and Marjorie Helgenberger were both like, can you guys like wait a couple of seasons to do a spinoff and not do it like right now on season two? Anyway, nobody cares about CSI except for me. So somebody else wants popping. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds fun. Satchel. Uh, over the pandemic, I've learned that I love mess. I love 
watching mess unfold, just pure chaos. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. For me, we just managed to get our hands on a PS5. So I've been playing through the remastered version of God of War that they put out. Yeah. It's my first time through and it's been so much fun. I'd been kind of looking for media with just cozy environments to bring in the fall and God of War was not on my checklist for that, but their whole rebrand is just something else. It, the rebrand from Greek to Norse mythology was like the best thing they ever did. It like introduces this cross genre of fantasy and forestry and elven technology and stuff. And I just find myself kind of spending time like in that game. And it's been like just wonderful. Have you guys played or? I have not, but it's nice to hear that. Yeah. Knowing pretty much nothing about God of War, it's nice to hear that it has the vibes. I love when you find a game like that. You find the thing to do where you're wandering around and it's just nice, you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm really glad to hear that. Yeah. You know, normally when you like in these kind of like third person games, like you move the joystick in a direction and you're like running. Like, I'm just so taken aback by just, you can just see like all the research that went into the details of everything. I literally just walk around. Like, even in combat, I walk. (laughs) It's been really interesting. How the hell did you get a PS5? Like, (laughs) did you just luck into it or did you have a connection somewhere? So here's the weird thing. My partner Sky and I, like, we both wanted one since last year. And we were like, we we both agreed, like, you just want to walk in the store and get one, right? Like, you don't want to do this whole thing. I don't want to wait for it to drop and yeah and do all the following so we were like we'll walk in the store year later it's equally as scarce as the year before (laughs) yes right i just signed up for the gamestop power-up rewards thing oh yeah and i don't know why more people don't do this they literally just email you like two hours and they're just like we have stock it's going up at this specific time i signed up the next day i got an email saying hey it's going up I actually signed in late, like 15 minutes after they put it up, followed the link. It said it was there. I added to the cart. I was like, I guess I'll get it. And then I got it. That is the easiest PS5 story I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah. Like, you don't have to cross a bridge and go through the taco pit and yeah. you know, get arrows fired <laughs> at you. Taco, that's right. I knew people were like checking their phone, you know, following these Twitter accounts and like, yeah, oh, it's, it's just, I don't have time for that shit. Like, I'm going to have to do that because I also have wanted one actually for a while. I didn't buy a DVD player like two years ago because I was like, oh, you know what? I'll just get the new PS5 when it comes out. Mm -hmm. And they hadn't even like totally confirmed it yet. And that was maybe the dumbest idea I've ever had in terms of how to get a DVD player (laughs) because I still don't have one. Oh, yeah. I watched my Criterions on my ancient PS3. (laughs) Yeah. You want a PS5? Is there a game? specifically that you're really excited for? Well, I heard great things. I've never played a Ratchet and Clank game, and I heard really good things about the new one. Gene Park, a former guest on the show, a gaming reporter for the Washington Post, was talking about that. And people say Returned is also great. But I mainly just want a DVD player and figured I should get it. <laughs> it would be so much easier to just buy a DVD Look, player. I'm a Layton. If you think I don't know that, believe me, I'm very aware that I could literally just go buy a DVD player, probably for not that much money. Certainly not $500. Yeah. Okay, so if you really want a PS5, all you have to do is go to the store and buy a DVD player and you will find a PS5 the next day. That's exactly how the universe works. I'm sure that's how it's going to go, yeah. Wait, so Satchel, what are you most excited for for PS5? Actually, 
there was nothing in particular, if I'm honest. Scott had some specific things that he was into. And I was kind of like on the periphery. I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of cool playing indies on Switch. But then I started just getting an itch like by osmosis. I haven't really seriously dove into like triple A's in like a long time. But I'm in this weird kind of thing where like now I like care a bunch about him. I don't know. Maybe I don't want to think too much or something. But I guess I kind of want like a large cinematic kind of vibe that I haven't really wanted before. And I'm scratching the itch and it, it feels really good. It feels like going to a theme park, you know? It has been so intricately designed to be as, like, chewable as possible. And it is a treat when you get that special thing. And it's like, yeah, we did this just to impress you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I also want a console where I'm morally justified in not letting my kid use it. And with the Switch, <laughs> that is not the case. But I could very easily be like, I'm sorry, Audrey. That's an adult console. You can't, you can't use that one. So, you know, when you have a young child, the idea of having something that they're not allowed to touch, oh, it's really great. <laughs> it's an easy thing to trick a child into doing. I remember I thought Sobe, you know, the little lizard drink was a beverage for adults because I had an older relative who really <laughs> loved them and told me that I, they're not for kids because there's booze in them. That's <laughs> awesome. Do they still make Sobe? I think so. I never see it. I just think it's cool to have a lizard as your mascot. Maybe it's a new logo. I keep thinking of like the tribal tattoo, like yes. style Sobe yes. logo. Yes, totally. It's probably like Helvetica now or something. Lowercase <laughs> Helvetica, that's what I was going to say. Yeah. It's all gradients. I'm looking at it. I don't think I've ever had one because that was so thoroughly ingrained in me that it was an adult drink when I was a kid. Cool. Anyway, Sobe Lizard. All right. So that was what's popping, right? We whoa, did it. Whoa, 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 whoa. Oh, I'm sorry, Brian. Yeah, thank you. Do you want to ask I'm me so the question? <laughs> Brian, what's popping? <laughs> thank you. Thank you for thinking of me. Like, and I really I'm appreciate so sorry. that. I'm so, so sorry. So kind of we got on the PS5 sidetrack. I'm sorry. Yes. All right. What's well, popping for me this week? It is uh, it's a TV show. It's on Apple TV. Layton, it is something you would hate. It is Schmigadoon. Ooh. Have you watched this, Satchel? You're making this up. I saw the trailer. I think it's six parts. It is a musical uh, starring Keegan-Michael Key and Cicely Strong and just a million other, like Martin Short's in it, Kristen Chenoweth, Jane Krakowski, all these people. Basically, it's a bunch of numbers which are generally very specific homages to classic Broadway stuff. And it is so fun and well-written and sung and danced and everything. I mean, it really is just like an old school kind of classic musical. Basically, the two leads, Keegan Michael Key and Cicely Strong, they're on a hike. They're a couple. They're both doctors. And they're in the woods. They're on a camping trip. And somehow they find themselves in this, like, Schmigadoon is a pretty clear reference to Brigadoon, which is a musical that nobody actually really likes, but everyone's aware of. It's about this town that appears every however many years out of the mist. Uh. And so this kind of very quaint looking, you know, kind of maybe 20s, 30s sort of era, American city sort of thing appears. They get transported into it and they're told that they can walk the bridge out of it once they have found true love. And it's a very corny setup as it's intended to be. And I just thought it was a really fun and classic musical kind of thing that you don't see too much of these days. I love both the leads 
Key is amazing. Strong is amazing. Like there, she's a great singer. He's a terrible singer and a terrible dancer, and he knows it. And <laughs> Hell yeah. part of his character is refusing to sing and hating musicals. I believe he said at some point that the choreographer called him the worst dancer he'd ever seen, or something like that. So he's, you know, he's not a musical guy. He's obviously a very talented like actor, but not a singer or dancer. But it's just great. It's a lot of fun. I recommend it. That's great. It sounds like it was genetically engineered in a lab to be the thing that I would hate the most. I agree with that. <laughs> I'm glad that it exists and I'm glad that you enjoy it. Yes. It's clearly a thing that a lot of people would love. So that's awesome. Yeah. A lot of it is like Rodgers and Hammerstein kind of era musicals. So if you know Oklahoma or, you know, that kind of stuff very well, it'll be like, oh, okay, this is like the Oklahoma song and this is like this song and this is like the, that song to an extent where sometimes you're like, all right, guys, like this is a little too close to home, but whatever, I can forgive that. That's cool. I love when pieces of entertainment that are like predicated on a lot of inside baseball get big budgets because I just know a lot of people are going to be really happy, you know? It doesn't happen often yeah. enough. Yeah, totally. When you can tell when creative people, they love something and so much good media comes out of people who really, really love a thing and are like versed in the genre, it's nice. Yes, totally agree. All right, final segment. Peaches and Lemons, it's a three-part gratitude exercise and one-part petty grousing, and the theme song goes here. Peaches and Lemons. Peaches and Lemons. Okay, that was the theme song for Peaches and Lemons. We will each start with a lemon, which is a thing that is a mild bummer or annoyance or whatever else. So, lemons. I have one. All right, go for it. I did not think that we were going to talk about like user design and stuff because my lemon is that. <laughs> <laughs> Hulu, what the fuck are you guys doing? Yes. What the fuck? So bad. Wait, are we talking about the app? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm glad it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Because, okay, I'm watching CSI on Hulu. There's a lot of stuff that I want to watch on Hulu. The syncing between devices. When I open up a show that I have been watching, I want it to start on the episode that I was yes. just watching. I don't want you to take me to season one. Why are you taking me to season one and I, like putting me on the pilot? Why? I had a thing today with Hulu, not to jump on what you're saying, where <laughs> I opened it on an iPad and I was signed in as myself. I double-checked this a thousand times Literally nothing from my home screen was anything I had watched before. Why is it so hard to find the things that you are watching? I just want to see up top, this is what you were watching. Here's the episode that you were on. It yes. feels like it was intentionally designed to piss me off. <laughs> I could not agree more. It's just awful. And the fact that sometimes when you open the app, you can't do anything but start the episode that you were watching like or, or you hit the wrong thing like you see the home screen for a second yes. straight to the episode and it's not even the episode you were watching yes get it together that's my love <laughs> somebody else lemon so i have another tech one this week we just had an apple keynote event i wanted to say one thing that i hate is the completely justifiable incrementalism of technology and by that i just mean like everything's like basically just great now. Like we're kind of hitting a ceiling <laughs> with new things. And it felt like there was kind of a wonder for the future in 2010 that's just not here anymore. Like tech advancements uh -huh. 
are so married to science fiction from like the 80s to the 2000s that we're kind of bone dry just short of creating an actual matrix. And I guess there was always a part of me that like loved like that kind of 90s cyberpunk future. Totally. But now we're there and <laughs> I'm realizing all the things that come with that. But then also I've just normalized so much in technological advancements that I miss that wonder a little bit. Yeah, you forget how ubiquitous touchscreens are now versus, you know, even 15 years ago. Like, touchscreens seemed like inaccessible magic, and now it's just like, yeah, yeah, I don't know. You tap some shit, use a bunch of fingers, and it does oh, different yeah. stuff. I remember when a friend of mine got the first version of the iPad, I was like, what the fuck is this? Right, right? It felt impossible, to be blunt. It was like, I could not believe it. It did not feel real. You would like go to a Best Buy just so you could play with the magical toys. Yeah. Like when the first iPhone came out, every phone manufacturer was like, it's not going to work. It's going to fail. There is no way that there is a battery that can just have a screen just be on and that be the primary thing you use all day. And then it just happened. Yeah. I never really looked back. Totally. Yeah. Right? My lemon is mail. Why are we still getting mail? No one wants mail. Like... Come on. It's 99% complete crap. One out of every 10 days, there's something worth getting in the mail. And it just feels completely pointless and like an ecological disaster because it's just paper that I throw out. I got mad at it today because there's too much of it. Junk mail was always a thing. Now it feels especially stupid. Like all these things could just be emailed to me. You're getting another chore that you have to do. It's like, oh, I brought this up to my, I gotta get, I have to make sure there's nothing important in here in, in between all this bullshit. It's absolutely right. There's just enough of a positive hit rate to keep you going through it. My instinct would just be, you know, throw it all in, in the spam folder, which is to say the garbage can. But there's like every once in a while, when the fuck the last time you guys get a bill in the mail, like I'm on, everything is paperless for me now. I never get mail bills. It's I never get checks in the mail. Like it feels like we should be beyond this. Speaking of technological wonder, I want the technological wonder of not having to get letters in the mail. <laughs> that said, same. I recognize that the postal service is very important and this does serve <laughs> a function. For example, I voted by mail, which is great. And we need to keep that. Like, that's important, but calm down with the bullshit mail. There needs to be, like, a centralized anti-spam service for, like, physical mail. Yes. For a while, there was that, like, opt-in, no-junk-mail thing, which I feel oh, yeah. like maybe didn't actually do anything, but you could opt into it. I would pay, I think, to just— Absolutely <laughs> would pay. Do you know there's an old Mitch Hedberg joke about the person who hands out leaflets or, like, flyers on the street— and his joke is like, that job is the equivalent of somebody going, hey, you throw this out. Hey, you throw this out. Hey, you throw this out. Uh, rip to a legend. Or like evangelical tracts. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. How many spam calls do you two get a day? A lot. So now I'm on T-Mobile and a lot of them are from, it says scam likely, which to me sounds like an old time huckster character. From like an old movie. <laughs> ah, it's me, yeah. scam likely. <laughs> That's perfect. Right? He's got the straw hat on, like from the 20s, with the band around it, holding a big cane on the, you know, like the boardwalk or something. Mm -hmm. Can't trust him, see? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs>
but yeah, a lot. I'd say it's like several a day. Yeah. If I'm getting a call, I know it's not somebody that I want to talk to because you would know not to call. Yes. And I got very lucky in that when we lived you know, abroad for a few years and when we came back, we came in through Minnesota where my wife's from. And so I got a SIM card in Minnesota. And so now whenever I get Minnesota calls, unless they're from someone I know, and that's where all my spam calls are Minnesotan, it's like, well, ignore that one because uh, I don't know anyone there. It makes it very yeah. easy to differentiate. Shall we? Peaches. Yes. I'll run through mine. My first peach is that every morning I have a ritual where I give maybe a dental chew. She's such a delicate little flower that she can't handle like most chewy trees. <laughs> she heard me rustle the bag. I'm sorry. <laughs> that was on you. You have to admit that <laughs> yeah, was on you. That's on me. But if I give her another one, then she's going to be constipated. <laughs> Anyway, every morning I come up to her. She sits. She does that thing that dogs do where they sit like ramrod straight because they want to be good and they want to get the treat. I hold it in front of her face. She like wags her tail rapidly. I give it to her. And then she has a moment where her brain short circuits and she doesn't know what to do. So she always like freezes for a second with it in her mouth. Like she's so excited, didn't expect to get it. And then she runs to a spot on the carpet and eats it excitedly. Dog is so dumb. But it's like the reason I get out of bed every morning because I'm like, oh, I get to give maybe her treat. So that's peach number one. Peach number two is that last week I started having chest pain and I was naturally like, oh, I'm going to have a heart attack and die. Uh, and so that was the crushing anxiety. And so I made an emergency doctor's appointment. Turns out heart's fine, but you can apparently where your ribs connect to your sternum, there's cartilage there, and your cartilage can just get inflamed. So that's what's happening. Oh, that's what it was. Okay. Yeah. Despite that, the entire time after that appointment, I've been like, they're wrong. They missed it. I'm going to drop dead of a heart attack at 24. <laughs> Fuck. Turns out just have anxiety. And then my third peach is that I've actually gotten into the consistent habit of waking up early. Like I get up at 7.30 and I thought that this is a point I would never reach in my entire life. Just get all your shit done before noon. It's like having an extra part of your day and nobody else is up. I always get up and like immediately go somewhere just so I'm awake. I'm loving it. I like not being a 2 a.m. sleep till noon bitch. This is way better. <laughs> I love your description of 7.30 as a time when nobody else is up. That is maybe the most 24 <laughs> thing I've ever heard. I know, but I mean, listen, in my neighborhood, nobody else is up. No, I completely get it. It's before the hipster rush, you know? Yep. So those are my peaches. Cool. Satchel? My first peach is bicycles. Just them existing. I've been in car free for a few years now. And uh, nice. since lockdown, I guess my bike is just come through in a lot of ways mentally. I think it's because it kind of forces you to be a part of everything you're passing, like on the way to wherever you're going. I've been taking it easy since our move to Philly, but before then I had a practice of riding along these cornfields to this county park that has like this shallow stream. And I just set up like a little folding chair and like read manga. It was just like a, a life-giving thing to do while it's still warm. Yeah. Are you a fixed gear or... I don't know anything about bikes. It's like a e-shifter. You can like do manual kind of gear shifting, but it'll kind of measure based on like incline or whatever and like 
switch it up for you and you can kind of set the sensitivity or whatever. Awesome. Yeah, but any bike's cool, you know. My second would be H-Mart. Nice. Yeah. So if there's anyone listening who's unfamiliar, it's like this Korean national grocery chain. Sometime when he's on my mother's side and spent some time growing up in like a predominantly Asian American community. And this store just forms a sturdy bridge to so many yummy, nostalgic and discoverable things. The one in Philly is actually like the Mitsua in LA with like a food court and all that other stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's a Mitsua in Edgewater in New Jersey as well. Just pre-marinated Korean barbecue, hot pot, shabu shabu, like snacks. What's your go-to snack? I usually like making like a quick little soup, like a quick little broth, just throwing a bunch of stuff in a pot. Feels like you're in like Breath of the Wild for 10 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Love it. Yeah. Uh, So this is this weird primordial thing. I guess it's homesteady. The third, I'm going to go with gay bars for two things, warm, intentional interactions and story moments. So by warm, intentional interactions, I mean like since coming here, I've like made friendships and found myself in hangout plans within the first months of being here. And I air towards introversion. Like I know enough about myself to know that I'm just not going to initiate a conversation with somebody, but I like showing up with a book or a journal to sketch in and people will start a conversation or ring you in. And I've met so many wonderful people that way. By story moments, I mean sort of like the intergenerational context of just meeting tremendous people who have like either like seen or like survived the most interesting things. Earlier this week, I met this sweet couple who they've known each other since they were like 16 years old. Like they asked me like where I was coming from. I was like, oh yeah, I recently moved from New York, whatever. And like one of them was explaining like, you know, they were born and raised in Philly, but one of them lived in New York City in the West Village right across from Stonewall while the riot happened. Holy shit. And it was so interesting the way that he was explaining. He was like, you know, I understand like the importance of the narrative the way it's being told right now. And he was kind of explaining, you know, everyone says that that Marsha B. Johnson like threw the first brick, but, you know, she actually wasn't there. She was on the train like during that time. Like he's just telling me like his just like firsthand experience or whatever. He's like, it's on record that like she wasn't even there at all. And like people talk about it as like this sort of like riot that was like this random kind of eruption of people who can't take it anymore. And in some ways that was like the case, but there was actually like planning for like months of this like militant formation, this block that this bar is on. It's kind of like a a half block. It used to be my favorite place to hang out. The kind of strip of buildings that it's on formed the shape of a triangle. And he was kind of explaining like people would like circle around that triangle and like overwhelm the police and all this other stuff. It was just really interesting to like hear somebody who was there for such a tremendous piece of history that people talk about every year and like kind of explain like where they land and stuff. And I would have never gotten that if I didn't just kind of show up and just kind of hung around or whatever. But that's sort of what I mean. Like part of it has just been belonging to a community again. And gay bars in particular were the first to reopen and require COVID vaccination back in Q1 since generally the clientele is like on board with, you know, just respecting each other and you know right those would be my peaches that's so great yeah it's great i feel like in queer spaces like that there is you know that sense of like automatic community and it's so cool that like that intergenerational history is there too just because we were talking about this a few episodes ago of just like how important those irl queer spaces are and i'm glad that gay bars have survived the pandemic for sure for sure for sure tight brian 
Peach number one. Uh, Leighton and I were guests on another podcast this week. One of my favorites called What's That From? It's two comedy type people talking about comedy and they reached out and had us on and we had a lovely chat with them, mostly about therapy, but I'm such a fan of their show and it was flattering to be asked. I love that they asked both of us. Very flattering intro. It was very sweet. Yeah, they said very nice things about us on the episode that came out today. It was a great experience all the way around. And I felt like I met two really cool people I hadn't known before. So yeah, that was great. Peach number two, my seven-year-old is getting into chess and it is really fun to play with her. I mean, she sucks, let's be honest at it, but uh, she's seven. So that's not the point. The point is she knows all the pieces and can think a few moves ahead. And that's the main thing I'm trying to instill in her right now when we play and I'm not, by the way, good at chess, like at all. I know essentially nothing about it, but I like playing it and I'm trying to teach her, okay, if you do this, then what can I do? And then what can you do? So as long as she's exhibiting that kind of thinking, which she definitely is, and she has tricked me a few times and she's getting better and better. She's going to be better than me in like two months. It's so much fun. And she got into it because her second grade teacher who she called, quote, the coolest person she's ever met, plays chess. And he taught the kids a little bit. And then we'd already been playing a little at home, but it's fun to have a kid around seven or so, six, seven. You're like, oh my God, this person is like smart now. Whoa. And you can start doing like actual things with them instead of like baby things. That's pretty yeah. cool. Yeah, that's a fun transition. And the other thing is, you know, typically this would not be a peach, but it's been a while. I got my first haircut in an actual like barbershop since two years ago or whatever it was. And I'm not a huge fan of that whole process, but it was a thing. It was like, oh, this was cool. Actually, Audrey and I got our hair cut at the same time. So we sat next to each other in this little salon near our house while she talked to the person who was cutting her hair and I talked to the person who was cutting mine. And so we had a little dad-daughter moment and it was just nice to get back to a ritual that you know, I hadn't participated in for whatever, 18 months or something. Lovely. So, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, that is the show. Satchel, this has been such a treat uh, to spend a whatever. This has been so good. You guys are so fun. <laughs> you too. Yeah. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Is there anything in particular that you would like to plug or where people can find you or whatever else? Sure. So on Twitter, it's just Satchel Drakes. It'll be spelled out, I guess, wherever you get the podcast. I don't have a particular product, just kind of vibing, uh, <laughs> share photos and stuff, talk about stuff once in a while. I have a show with uh, another creator named Alex Fasciani, who is unendingly funny and completely wonderful. Good dude. It's called Nonprofit. Profit spelled like Moses the Prophet. It's a little play on words. And... You know, we talk about basically anything and we just kind of work through it. We just kind of discourse and have a good time. There's a first season out. Second season will be out at some point real soon. And then on Instagram, I'm a okra punk and I do a series called Game and Swatch where I guess it's kind of like a fusion of my two loves, video games and design. So I, I take people's favorite game box art by request and I kind of break them down into minimal Pantone swatches. And it's a fun thing to do. And I get to interact with people and 
make some people happy. And yeah, that's it for me. They're really beautiful. Speaking of vibes, like everyone go check that out. They're really cute. Thanks so much. Everyone, thank you so much for being here today to listen to this episode. I hope you all are doing well, vibing, thriving, surviving, flirty, fun, and fresh. Stay safe, come hard, fuck off, etc. You know, that's the end of the show. (laughs) Satchel, we have about four catchphrases that Leighton cycles through at the end of every show. I love all of them. (laughs) All right. right. Bye-bye. Bye, everybody. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com.